Hey there and welcome to another episode of the Desi VC where I, your host, Akash Bhatt, chat with angel investors and venture capitalists investing in tech startups in India. Our guest today is Pranav Pai, founding partner at 314 Capital. 314 Capital is a VC firm based in Bangalore and is known to have made investments in companies such as Your Story, Fairsent, Magic Crate, Davin Box, Traction, among many others. Their investments are mainly focused around D2C, media and content, fintech, enterprise automation, and deep tech. Pranav also happens to be one of the youngest fund managers in the country and was recently recognized as a 40 under 40 investment professionals in India. It was such a delight speaking to Pranav and we got to discuss some really interesting topics including thesis development, impact of parachute investments and economics of fund formation among other subjects in the context of Indian venture capital. Well, before we jump into the episode, I just want to remind everyone that I also add a glossary of terms and some other useful information under the podcast notes section with each episode in case some parts get a little too technical or jargon heavy. I hope that helps everyone follow along. Well, let's not waste any more time. Let's jump straight into the episode. Here's Pranav. Hi, Pranav. Thanks for joining me today and welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you. How's it going? Thank you, Akash. Great to be here. It's going great. Um, India, Indian VC, as you know, uh, is doing fantastically well. We broke all the records last year, uh, so it couldn't be going better for us. Awesome. That's great to hear. So I want to start off first with your journey. How and why did you pivot from a product tech background at EdCast in the Bay Area to venture capital in Bangalore? Yeah, that's a great question. So it all comes down to how we thought about, how we think about ourselves and what we project 10 or 15 years down the line. So while I was at Stanford, uh, you know, uh, one great opportunity I got while I was there is, you know, you get to live alone, you get to be in a separate context, you get to be amongst some of the smartest people you'll ever meet. And you really get pushed to challenge yourself and think about what your life is going to be like down the line once you graduate. So I'd set a certain set of goals for myself. Uh, and how to get there, meaning what I would need to get there every step of the way and what it would mean for me once I reach those objectives. That's what uh, made me think about what's the best career path that would end up with those objectives. So a simple set of objectives, for example, was uh, I prioritized financial independence. Uh, I prioritized, uh, you know, using my skills to solve a real problem. And the problem I identified was that new asset creation, which was most reliant on technology now than ever before is still fairly weakly conducted in most parts of the world. So I thought that, look, this is a brand new area. It's going to become a big problem down the line. And my skills seem to be most relevant uh, to solving this problem if I start today. And the last point, of course, was I definitely wanted to come back to India. Uh, I'd been observing India from outside since 2011. I'd seen the startup ecosystem grow. I thought that we were reaching a certain crescendo in terms of critical mass of people, of talent, of problems, of ideas and finally of capital. Uh, so I saw myself as one of the people who could be an interesting bridge between the micro and the macro, the capital and the idea. And thankfully the context helped me uh, reach this position fairly quickly. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a fortunate career path. Uh, not too many people get to enter VC this young. Uh, all of us, you and me included, uh, have an excellent opportunity to actually create something and, and change uh, context for the better. So that's how I thought about venture capital and that's why I prioritized my objectives to get into this career path as quickly as possible. Well, that makes sense. I read somewhere that you are one of the very few VCs in the world who invest between 30 to 80% of uh, capital in your own fund. Uh, right. That gives a lot of assurance to other co-investors or LPs as you'll have more skin in the game. I'm interested right. in learning about the philosophy and rational behind this decision. Yeah, that's a great question again. I think every VC fund is started with a base set of principles. Any company started with a base set of principles. And the people who start that company or that fund, they have to align with those principles and agree that these principles are important. Right. So for us at 314, when Siddharth and I were thinking about why we would start a fund in the first place, uh, we had, again, very simple principles. Number one is, look, we had certain financial goals we had to reach. And there is no one we would trust to manage the capital we have access to better than ourselves, meaning that is the highest, highest possible amount of agency we could have right, to hit our goals. Uh, 
So that's number one. Uh, that's the fundamental reason why we would put capital in our own fund. The second very important reason is that uh, we have aspired to work with a select set of people in India and outside who we've grown up respecting, who we've grown up admiring, who we have a lot of affection for. And these are the kind of people who we would like to work with. And capital is a fantastic way to bring people together, like minds together, and grow something together and you know hit, hit certain set of objectives that are common for all of us. So do good while, of course, uh, creating more wealth for everyone. That's very important to us. And the third very, very interesting thing is while we observed the market that we're in, the fundraising market as VCs, we found that there's a certain weakness in venture capital as a whole. It's not just in India, it's in most part of, parts of the world. And hedge funds have really set a standard for what skin in the game should really be. Most mm-hmm. hedge fund managers, uh, as they get to fund two, fund three, they, they usually have rolling funds. Uh, they are required by their uh, LP agreements to have a certain set of their profits reinvested back, right? Uh, so in that sense, right. that gives their uh, LPs uh, a kind of 10-year view of how to work with this fund manager. You can't do that in a VC fund because you don't have rolling funds. Most VC funds are term-ended, meaning if we uh, get an exit, we have to distribute the money back. We don't recycle mm-hmm. the money. So we found that while we can't do rolling funds and reinvest future gains back, what we could definitely definitely do is commit capital upfront, right? And take that plunge with our investors. And that's something that we thought, look, the hedge funds have already set a precedence. It's not a far-fetched idea for VCs to follow in whatever way structurally, structurally possible for them. And that's the third reason why we said, look, we have to set a new standard. So pulling all this together, I think uh, that's what's helped us raise capital quickly. Uh, we've quadrupled capital under management over the last four years. We, we are now at 800 crore rupees or just over $115 million. And uh, we will definitely keep putting our own capital in every fund we raise as long as we're able to. So that's something we take very seriously. And I think that's helped us gain an edge uh, as we build the firm out. Absolutely. That's a very interesting take in uh, with respect to fundraising itself from a VC perspective. So I was really curious to understand the philosophy behind it. And now it may all makes sense. Um, you know, moving along, I mean, I... You see the venture capital landscape in India has seen some companies go public, for instance, India Mart in 2019, um, or you know you, you have companies that get acquired. We have plenty of examples in that case. And you have the other side of the trend where we have witnessed over the past few years the rapid pace of new early stage venture fund formation with significant growth in the amount of capital invested. A decade ago, well, there were very few venture capital, traditional VC firms, and most of the okay. funds uh, well, I mean, today you see a lot of funds popping up almost anywhere, larger pool of angels, and there's increased activity from non-Indian VCs. How has that right. impacted your strategy, thesis development, and investment patterns, if I could put it that way? That's, that's a good question. So those are three separate questions, thesis, uh, development of our own capital base, and mm-hmm. how we work with the market. So thesis-wise, look, um, one, one trend is very clear. Uh, a parachute VC, meaning someone who comes from another country into some other country, drops in for a for a week, uh, you know, puts uh, invests in a couple of companies, goes back, and does maybe quarterly calls or or, or biannual follow-ups. That's almost never worked. Uh, in fact, the only country it's worked in is the U.S., and that's because the U.S. is a very deep venture market, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Last year they broke their own records; more than hundred billion dollars uh, was invested into venture capital in the U.S. So you can mm-hmm. do that in deep markets where the where the market liquidity will just take you up and your chances of succeeding uh, purely out of just luck and market forces is re- reasonably in your favor. But in most countries in the world, that's not true. Right? For example, if you if you went to China uh, 15 years back and just prayed and prayed, uh, chances are you lost more money than you made. Right? Even right. in China today, which is a which is a massive market for VC. So the first thing we did is we built a bottom up thesis, right? And we spoke about this Akash over our previous interactions. That's yep. the strongest sense of the market you can get, right? It's a lot of work. It's very intense work. It's very challenging. Uh, you will find a lot of contradictions as you build up your understandings of different markets uh, in different countries, and more so in India, because India is such a vast market. There are so many segments of customers. Uh, so much is non-uniform and heterogeneous that it's very hard to find baseline denominators that you can apply in most parts of the country. So it took mm-hmm. us a long time. It took us more than five years to understand specific markets. And I will still claim that we don't understand all these markets as deeply as we should. And we had, there are several new markets where we haven't spent time building the same kind of competence yet. But that being said, what we've done is given us a firmer grounding 
in what's in what reality looks like right and therefore when we meet founders when we meet new new entrepreneurs when we meet established companies large corporations prospective lps and we meet people from outside coming in and today we work with almost every large investor in the indian venture capital ecosystem including corporate strategics bfis and so on the interesting thing that stands out in in our favor is that we are able to speak about these markets with confidence so that's number one i think that's the most important thing any vc can do uh, find dominion in a geography or a market build very deep understandings and then the mm-hmm. respect the credibility the grounding it just shows in how you speak about what you're doing that's not, that's very important it's important for vc fund managers it's important for entrepreneurs it's important for anyone that's looking at building large companies and creating value so that's that's one piece of it the second mm-hmm. piece i would say in terms of working with this ecosystem is that i would still argue india is a very capital starved uh, country uh, we are not as deep a market as we sh- we can be uh, and and just to give you a sense of how big we are the us invested over 100 billion in vc last year china was around 40 or 45 billion and india was 14.5 billion which is number 3 in the world right mm-hmm. so we're intensely competing with israel with the uk with germany so everyone's in the 9 to 15 billion dollar range after us and china but that's how far ahead those two countries are right now india is the only country of size in the number 3 to number 10 that can absorb that kind of capital but that kind of capital is not coming into technology and and the vc ecosystem as of 2019 so i'm seeing more and more that local capital is getting more confidence rupee capital is getting more confidence in coming into indian startups therefore more indian companies are staying in india are domiciling here are uh, mm-hmm. thinking about a 10 year journey and going and listing in india in the indian markets i think the nsc and and in general the public markets are becoming much more receptive so there's a big shift towards let's build great large companies and create value as indians in india using as much rupee capital as we can uh, while we're still not fully there and i still think there's a large opportunity for for uh, um, for, for american capital for japanese capital chinese capital european capital for most established large uh, developed markets to create a lot of value here for themselves i also think rupee capital is now participating and that's good i think as rupee capital increases the depth of the market uh, is is it's far larger and of course then there's higher chances of creating value while you're investing so that's number 2 i think outside capital is definitely welcome india's a very open market in that sense and more mm-hmm. rupee capital coming in is deepens that market the third thing that you mentioned is working with other funds and I, I for one am very happy that there are so many more funds in India just over the last 5 years. I think uh, most of the GPs we are meeting come from the industry they come from technology they come from consulting they come from being trained at another fund before or working in PE and then starting VC. I think that's really important. I think good people smart people with track records uh, are able to launch funds and then attract the right kind of founders to them which is very critical because today it's no longer sufficient to just have capital to invest you have to be able to lend expertise you have to be able to lend a network of early adopters a network of power users a network of influencers to your companies so more established uh, gps with that track record that can be lent to companies means better companies means faster growth uh, means founders have more help uh, which therefore means a deeper market again so i think this is a positive feedback loop i'm very happy mm-hmm. that this has started over the last 5 uh, years i'm happy that we are contributing in our own small way it's only 110 million but hopefully we keep going the way we are so in that sense i think overall very very positive i think india is becoming a much much deeper market and that's better for all of us not just indians who are managing funds here but also global capital coming in looking to partner with indians in growing value in this country right i mean and working alongside other co-investors also mitigates the risk factor when you're investing both at the series and and at the series a level absolutely uh, i think i i fundamentally think that you know vc must be collaborative i still don't understand why some vcs would do rounds entirely on their own although that's that's still a trend uh, everywhere in the world not just in this country uh, so i definitely echo and mirror your thoughts i think collaboration is key and i think more more people in the mix just makes for more interesting opportunities i think startups are also looking to get funding from a multiple diverse background of investors rather than just one single investor because they see the value they see more people and and more strategic alignment when you know taking in funds is something that entrepreneurs are seeking more and more actively than ever before that's right that's absolutely right and i think it makes so much more sense uh, if you have three uh, investors on your cap table versus one in the same round 
that's three right. times the number of lps you can tap into right and most mm-hmm. most funds have very interesting lps some are strategic some are financial but definitely come with powerful networks it also gives you a head as a founder right uh, you have more debate on the board uh, you have more yeah. insight into markets uh, most importantly you don't you have a heads against unilateral control right uh, and right. for founders early that's still very important it's i very fundamentally important. believe founders should have should have a lot of autonomy uh, but uh, should understand and respect reasonable restrictions right uh, a respect for capital a respect for information a respect for transparency a respect for governance of course mm-hmm. so i think more investors just add more resilience to the early stage uh, and i think totally that's agreed. very important because in the end look this, these are high risk ventures anything that helps you mitigate or low, or manage risk better is welcome in my opinion so that's why we 100% prioritize collaboration in every round that we're pursuing that's that's great to hear and staying on the same subject what about valuations how do you think valuations over the last say 5 to 10 years really impacted not just what you do at 314 but also just the industry as such yeah that's uh, that's that's something that we've thought about very hard uh, and that actually impacted when we started our first fund so just to zoom out right i would argue that the cycle started really in 2010 2011 right the paytm the flipkart the first first interesting funding rounds Uh, mm-hmm. I was. I remember. I was just graduating uh, from undergrad in 2011. I was on my way to Stanford, and for the first time, when we were going to our placement offerings on campus in Bangalore, we saw two startups, Mu Sigma and Flipkart, coming to campus, right. and we were like, "Okay, who are these guys? You know, we never heard of these guys before." There's usually the infies of pros at ECS yeah. and so on. The I remember those days. <laughs> IT companies. So, so it was it was fantastic to you know actually be on the field and seeing this happen uh, live, right? Now, since 2011, uh, I think there have been three big trends that have impacted how ventures evolved. Number one is that there is more growth capital coming into India from outside, looking mm-hmm. to pick winners in certain well-known markets, so e-commerce, ride-sharing, food delivery, uh, financial services like lending. So there are like eight or nine markets that the whole world understands uh, along the same base denominator, right? so uh, large funds like tiger and softbank and you know the dozen large funds that have come in uh, they've all taken positions and helped create winners since 2011 right so capital has become an advantage for the paytms the olas the byjus mm-hmm. the flipkarts to to basically run their thesis through and actually win market leadership or win pole position to say maybe go ipo or the first ipo in that particular market coming out of india so i think that's that's something that gave a lot of indian capital uh, confidence that look mm-hmm. we can build large companies that the globe is the whole world is interested in but number two uh, a corollary of that unfortunately is that more capital is coming in but more capital is becoming more selective meaning the capital is getting concentrated in fewer companies right so since 2011 if you've noticed there's been a dip in the number of seed rounds that you would have adjusted in terms of growth and in terms of number of founders in the market right so mm-hmm. while absolute numbers of seed rounds have definitely gone up there are more founders today compared to 10 years back there are more companies looking for funding compared to 10 years back but on an adjusted basis fewer of those companies are getting funded right even in bangalore we're seeing that there are fewer seed rounds compared to even 2 years ago right so there is a cyclicality in how capital comes in and therefore how it concentrates right mm-hmm. and that's a mirror of how global vc is working there is more venture capital dollars in uh, on this planet than at any time in history but more of it is concentrating in fewer companies like tencent the music subsidiary or jewel or uh, you know uh, uber was a great example of concentration before its ipo uh, we work unfortunately so in that mm-hmm. sense i think that's a trend that's impacted india also uh, there is a lot of more capital but is looking for winners and therefore it's concentrating and therefore it's willing to take less risk from a concentration perspective and the third thing the third very interesting thing if you noticed is that as the cycles evolve when you would buy versus when you would uh, have your companies raise are two very different points of the cycle and this is something we learned uh, from of course thanks to our lps and our good friends before we launched our fund so when we launched fund 1 in 2016 we were actually waiting for a kind of correction in the valuation in the in the valuations in the market because 2014 and 2015 were bumper years right everything got funded uh, they all records were broken in 2015 and suddenly in 2016 we started seeing a dip uh, there yeah. there was a dip because e-commerce was uh, had become too hot 
Ride sharing have become too hot. Food, all these hyperlocal services have become too yeah, hot. Yeah, food tech wallets, services have become hot. Food yeah. tech, wallets. You remember this? We spoke about this, right? Wallets mm-hmm. was a great example. So we actually took zero positions in wallets, in in horizontal e-commerce, in a in in food delivery, in hyperlocal services, and we said, look, we're waiting for these other areas that we've been monitoring to become interesting. Let's find companies there now. The valuations are down, and let's buy low, right? Thankfully, that mm-hmm. worked. Uh, today, today I can argue 2019 was another peak, right? Compared right. to 2016, the peaks are the best times to raise money once you're in, right? To help your companies raise capital, become profitable, have that capital advantage we spoke about in 2011, 2012, 2013, right? Mm-hmm. So the basically the second cycle started, you can argue, in 2016, and I think it tapers out around 2020, 2021, depending upon how uh, global global cycles align. So we basically had an opportunity of entry in 2016. We took it, we we, we grabbed it, we grabbed it. it was, we were lucky that way. Uh, we got in. And since then, we've been able to help our companies raise and achieve the, what their plans say they will achieve sustainability and build build a profitable business that is impressive in the markets that they're going after. So that's how I would look at the last ten years. I think most VCs have timed it this way, right? Uh, they're also careful when things are too good. They're also more aggressive when things are under control. Uh, so I think this is something that, if you look at India, uh, it, I'm glad that there are fund managers who look at it this way. It makes for a much more Interesting market. It makes for founders to be able to judge their capital raises that much better. In that sense, it's a more mature market than even five years back. That's a very interesting perspective on fund on funding cycles, and I'd like to follow up on that, uh, especially when you're thinking about it from three and four perspective. What are some of the things you look for when you evaluate startups across different stages? Yeah, that's that's uh, the ever-present question for every VC. So we look. There are three parameters that are common. Uh, there's market, there's product, there's people. Right. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Sorry. We look for interplays between these three. That's number one. Because because the parameter we're actually looking for is timing, right? And timing kind of collapses all of these parameters into one function, and forces you to think about why these people, why these founders, why in why in this market, why not? Why with this product or why 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 with this product, right? And why not, mm-hmm. right? So all of those things have to line up uh, for the timing to be perfect. So if you look at it from timing out, then all of these questions you have to answer before you invest, right? So a simple example is if, if for example, uh, some fantastic computer scientists come to talk to us. These two excellent founders, they've got a 15-year uh, track record, but they're trying to build the best Pascal compiler in 2020, right? <laughs> no one cares about that anymore. So these might be right. great people. They might build a fantastic product, but the market is just not there, right? It's more of a hobby inverse, product. Yeah, yeah. It, it you know, it, it, no one runs Pascal anymore. No one's even thinking about that stuff anymore. So, so while we would love to get have these people succeed, it's impossible to build a great company uh, using using that using that drive. On the the inverse of this could be, uh, let's take a fantastic market, right? So let's take for example, we, we in India we're we're going through an NBFC crisis. You can argue this is the best possible time. to start a high quality lending company right because mm-hmm. by the time the crisis clears and the mood's back and the sentiment's positive you want to have one of the best books that that are that are at scale so use a good crisis never 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 miss a good crisis right okay. but if if it's a fantastic market you need absolutely crazy fanatical founders willing to take a massive risk at a at a time when this particular market this particular domain is at its lowest possible point right So you need some really guts of steel type founders who have an incredible view of the market, who got maybe very deep networks, who built something before for a corporate or a large bank or whatever, right? And they have to come with you saying, look, it's not business as usual. Therefore, a product's not going to be the same thing you would have expected even two or three years back. It's going to be completely different because we're building towards a new future that's going to come out of when this NBFC crisis gets solved. So you can't rely on familiar cues anymore, right? and that's why you need a different vein of founder and that's why you need a different vein of product right and you have to be able to look at the market this way so again the timing wa- timing is what helps bind is a common thread that binds all of these questions together and that's mm-hmm. what we try to optimize for so far i can i'm happy to share it's worked in many of our uh, companies it has worked against us in some companies uh, we had to shut down a few companies or the founders have decided to shut down and move on because the timing wasn't right uh, it happens all the time but i'm happy to say that just keeping this consistently on the top of our minds when we're looking at new companies has helped us stay sane uh, as we're seeing thousands of companies coming to us every year 
Interesting. And your company, I mean, your fund invests in both series and seed and series A. So that's right. During your diligence process, what are some of the metrics that you see and that you focus on, especially when I come, especially during one, a follow-on investment, and two, just comparing your seed investments to your Series A investments, what are different metrics that you really look for? I, I understand in seed is very different, and at Series you're looking for certain things itself. So could you shed a little more light on that? Yeah, that's a great question. So for new investments, right? Uh, so dog, uh, seed mostly at seeds. Uh, we are looking fundamentally at the timing question to be answered. And the only thing that's that we're waiting for is the right founder uh, to come to us in that space, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to understand the market. We have to be able to have a portfolio of products that might work in that market uh, and therefore how they will be built and what the margins look like and what, the, what, the, what a business plan would look like and so on and so forth. So we, we usually try and prepare our own understanding of the market before we meet founders. Uh, so one right. interesting thing about 314 is we try very hard. So far, we've been fairly good at it to be ready with an understanding of the market before we meet a company. We are not waiting for companies to come to us and educate mm -hmm. us about an idea before we invest, because that takes a long time. Then you have to Just build that. a thesis over six, seven months. And founders, I personally don't like taking that, that much time for a decision. I'd rather give a no and move on and have the founder save some time uh, versus mm -hmm. take six months to say yes or a maybe or whatever. So right. uh, that's that's important at the seed level. That's why we're able to make quick decisions. And that's actually, founders love it. Uh, they don't mind a no, as long as it's a quick no, and it's a clear no, and you can explain why it's a no. Usually our no's help founders realign their business plan and think about timing uh, in a slightly more concentrated fashion. So that's actually a big, valuable set, set of inputs we prepare to give founders when we meet them every month. At mm -hmm. the Series A level, uh, and I'll talk about new entries at Series A, Again, we're looking for a product to be actually built out. We're looking for actual actual paying customers or a propensity to pay and why they would pay for this product over something else, right? Because India is a very highly competitive space. So chances are you're almost always never alone as a company in a space. There's almost always competition. So by right. Series A, that competition is more developed, right? You're either going mm -hmm. after incumbents or you're going after larger startups or you have someone, another company at a similar stage. So uh, that's, uh, that's a good example of how we've looked at the space around the company, not just the company itself at Series A, and then pull the trigger at Series A. We've led a couple of, we've led a few Series A's, more than a couple now. Uh, they've done very well for us. Uh, we managed to bring in uh, follow-on investors fairly quickly uh, because we're able to explain our, our thinking slightly more clearer, uh, slightly more clearly along with the founder. Uh, so in that sense, I think Series A's have a slightly higher burden of proof, and that's fine. That's because it's a large amount of money. It's more developed. Uh, the Time towards exit is shorter now because it's no longer a seed stage. Therefore, your appetite for risk is slightly lower. So in that sense, we've calibrated ourselves to think about Series A's also. They're much more focused way. Now, follow-on funding is maybe the most interesting question you can ask a VC. Every VC has a different answer here, right? So some VCs are clear. They will only follow on if they want more ownership of the company, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whereas some VCs on the other end of the spectrum will say, I never follow on. I take my ideal holding in the first round. And after that, I'm never putting more money, right? So I've met fund, funds that have, have every possible permutation of uh, reasons between one extreme and the other, right? right. And uh, where we stand is very clear. Uh, in our best companies, we never want to get diluted, right? That's our mm -hmm. ideal state. Uh, we will hold on to them with tears in our eyes and white knuckles <laughs> for as long as <laughs> You possible. want to exercise your pro data, yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. In fact, we've raised a new fund just to exercise our pro data in some of our nice. best companies, so <laughs> the opportunity fund I spoke about. So why do we do that? It's not because we, we, we like these founders so much. It's not just because of, of relationships or sentiment. Most importantly, venture is a game of outliers, right? Every single book on venture capital says the same thing. And yep. you, if you have a company that's trending towards returning 100 times your capital, right? Since you first, in, first invested, of course, the chances are on a weighted basis, you're at least making 25, 30 times your money put in, your multiple invested capital. Those are the kind of companies that return funds for you, right? And if you've taken sufficient risk, you've, you've played the distribution the right way. Uh, if you have a couple of these in your in your portfolio, and if most good funds do, the chances are you miss even one round, you're hurting your return potential of the entire fund. So we right. take these, these decisions extremely seriously. Uh, and therefore, when we follow, it's usually a good sign to, the, to any market, not just us, but most funds when they follow. That there's confidence, there's, you know, this is an important company for us, so on and so forth. 
the unfortunate downside of this this the way this way of thinking is that if you don't follow chances are the signal gets interpreted exactly the opposite way uh, maybe it's not a great company maybe it's not one of your important ones and you unfortunately will have some sentiment hurt about that company if that gets out so this is an important decision right um, and that's why we are very clear with every company we invest in about what are the parameters we're looking for if we are to follow on right and we're extremely transparent about this after right after the first investment uh, and that's why i think founders respect that because again a no is fine no one's obligated to say yes all the time right. but a clear reason for a no or what can i do differently to get a yes right that's something that i think both sides of the table have to start discussing more transparently and that's a burden we take very seriously which is why i think so far it's worked out fairly well for us well it seems like there's an interesting subject here that i want to explore which is around your anti portfolio which i'll come towards the end of the podcast oh absolutely i'm happy to. <laughs> but um, you know you you've quoted an interview with ink 42 where you said that your role is to figure out how reverse how to reverse engineer the ideal return by investing in early stage funding uh, and you absolutely. also alluded to that point earlier in the podcast and you also are vcs who take both seats so mm-hmm. what role do you think that vcs play both at the seed stage and then at the series a yeah so good question now look we are vcs for a simple reason we are here to generate returns right um there are many many different reasons a fund manager gives to the market for why he's doing why he or she is doing what what they're doing right? Uh, right i want to change the world i want to help founders i want to work with smart people whatever right uh, but fundamentally you're not going to raise a new fund if you are not performing and if you're not generating returns so that, that's that's a common denominator for all vc funds true uh, this is a fairly unforgiving market let's let's put it nicely so the first thing we have to do is we have to have a clear idea about how our portfolio is going to develop over a 7 8 year period right mm. and therefore you start with your idealized return scenario and you work backwards from what kind of companies what kind of valuation growth what kind of business growth what kind of markets therefore what kind of thinking what kind of business plans uh, you have to have a good idea about these things before you launch a fund that's why we spend a lot of time thinking about what we'll do differently with every mm-hmm. new fund we'll raise right that's that's what i mean by reverse engineering you have to have this pattern in your mind uh, before you go out there raising money and then deploying it yeah that's that's the first thing i mean if you're not doing that then chances are your all the rules of the game are always against you right so that's right. number 1 number 2 something that again we take very seriously about about how we reverse engineer quote on quote is for every single company right um, i have seen funds that take you know they told their investors look i'm doing going to do 10 companies they'll take only two or three of them very seriously for whatever reason mm-hmm. and they're not too bothered about the rest right um, i that's one extreme and the other extreme is i've seen funds only bother about the ones that are not doing well ignoring the good ones right and when it times to when it when it comes to start generating exits you don't have the relationships with your best founders you, or your best companies you don't have enough of an insight into what kind of money is coming into those companies you haven't spent enough time with them therefore your end result isn't as promising as isn't as rewarding as it as it promised to be right mm-hmm. so that's the extreme you're plotting uh, where you spend one on one side you spend your attention on the wrong companies on the other side you're just not spending attention on anyone besides the top two or three so we are we have to be somewhere in the middle and while we have a portfolio the most important thing to understand here is the other side of the table the founders don't have a portfolio this company is their entire life right right uh, and i've been in a startup i i worked with a ceo a founder a solo founder i've seen just how nightmarish that experience can be when it's when it's going well and it's not going well when it's going well everyone wants a slice it's, it's traumatic how do you decide whose money to take when it's not going well no one wants to give you capital how do i pay salaries next month right so this is this is a wildly uh, dynamic decision set which is why we say look we have an idea of how our portfolio is supposed to behave now as we add companies to the portfolio with every company we are going to act like this is the company we have to make it succeed right and we will tell the founders exactly what we believe are the parameters that go into the success for this company at this time in this market with this kind of team right mm-hmm. so that's very important and i think founders respect that because while you cannot run the company for the founder <clears throat> and vcs are not expected to that's very important mm-hmm. uh, control control is something you have to be extremely cognizant about and how you use it i think founders respect the fact that you and him 
or you and her have aligned on a common understanding of where this company is supposed to go. Right. Once you have aligned, the only thing a VC is supposed to do, besides arranging for capital and helping with fundraising, is giving the inputs to get to that, to get to that success. Right. Next so stage. new revenue yeah. opportunities, uh, expanding to new geographies, understanding new markets, maybe a couple of M&A decisions. Uh, mm-hmm. So there are interesting ways you can build build for success and optimize every step of the way. So I think that's the best dynamic I've seen when it comes to working as as a startup employee. Uh, some, of, some of my fondest memories of useful VCs and useful investors have been mm-hmm. these kind of investors who come and just told us, look, this is what we think the company should do. This is how we think we can do it. Let's 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 hash it out and then let's set a common plan that all of us can get behind. I think that's the that's the smartest way to work. I think uh, I think freaking out about a, a one bad quarter. I think freaking out about a follow-on decision. I think those things are counterproductive. So we avoid all of those things. Uh, I think I think that's so far that's what's worked for us. So that's that's what I can share. That's great. That's very insightful. So you invest a, across five verticals. So I'm not wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. There, that's, that's right. D2C, okay. media, fintech, enterprise automation, and deep tech. There are a good mix of B2B and B2C startups on your fo- portfolio. So that's right. what are some of the differences when it comes to investing in B2C and B2B startups in India? Oh, that's there are phenomenal variances. I think the the most interesting thing as VCs is that B2C companies are able to absorb a lot more capital. Mm. Uh, so <clears throat> chances are, over a five-year period, your consumer companies that are doing well are raising far more rounds, are closing uh, closing far more capital. Their valuations, therefore, are growing far faster. But the business is harder to break down and break to sustainability. You need absolutely need high margins to make it work, right? So there's a different approach to creating and growing P2C companies and therefore a different approach in investing in them. On the other side, in B2B companies, India has a phenomenal advantage I haven't seen in too many countries where we still have a low cost base for product development and engineering compared to the rest of the world. Uh, We can build software far more efficiently than most of the rest of the world besides the US. Mm-hmm. And third, we are now trained to think globally, thanks to the first wave of IT, the Infis, the Wipros, and so on. Yeah. We're trained an entire ecosystem of 5 million people in this country to think about global delivery, right? So we can build Freshworks, we can build uh, Inmobis, Druvas, Isertis, we can build unicorn B2B companies in a fairly short span of time. And most of their clients will be outside this country, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's a very rare set of convergences that have happened in this country, I think that's an opportunity we don't want to miss, which is why in B2B, we think about not just how to fund them, but how to grow them and how to build value in them a little differently. So I think since we're playing the game of outliers, right, we have to increase the possible distribution of variance in our portfolio in order to build an outlier portfolio as a whole. So having a good mix of B2C and B2B as long as you understand the markets and you're not losing your mind over how this company is supposed to work, adds to those variances and helps increase the chances of having a high-performing portfolio. That's how we thought about the mix. And that's why we have a mix of B2C and B2B. Uh, we could be a very successful fund doing only B2B. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we could be. I'm not saying we can't be. We could be a good fund doing only B2C, right? But we're taking more risk, obviously. Uh, we'll be concentrating uh, in certain themes. Uh, if if certain themes go bad because of macro macro cycles, we're in the lurch. So we will we will have a bad fund. So that's why we have, in our opinion, a more horizontal approach to how to how to get into Indian VC as we stand today in year five. Uh, five right. years down the line, we might have more thematic funds. Uh, Ten years down the line, we might have a lot more happening in the growth stage. I I can't say right now, but as we evolve every year, we're looking at how the market's changing. That's why we will adapt how we construct our portfolio. That's great. And on a related note, in my opinion, again, uh, feel free to disagree with me on this. Majority of platform shifts are born out of innovation of an accessory of a prior platform. Example, AirPods. So what are some of the trends in innovation in the B2B, B2C space that you're seeing that excites you most in India? Oh, that's a fantastic question. Um, I may, I'll, share, I'll share maybe the most interesting story I heard about Indian technology. Okay. Back in the back in the late 80s, there were three or four interesting people 
who had started companies in something called IT that no one in this country had the remotest idea about, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so for one, there were not too many Indian corporations in the late 80s, early 90s buying technology, right? Uh, in fact, there you'll hear stories about uh, fintech founders today, guys like Amrish and Jitin and so on, who were walking right. around in the late 90s, early 2000s, trying to sell printers that would print out your passbooks. And when they went to banks and tried to sell them a printer saying, sir, this, this will get you more output per hour than your physically written handbooks. The mm-hmm. banks would say, I'm sorry, what am I supposed to do with the 2,000 people I've hired who write passbooks <laughs> every day? Right? Right. I can't fire these people. <laughs> so th- that, that was the context right, for technology. Uh, and yeah. it's, it's fascinating. Uh, that, that's the context I grew up with. So to in that context, for companies like Infosys, Wipro, TCS, Cognizant, and, and a dozen other big services emphasis and so on, to have come out and become multi-billion dollar companies, right? Mm-hmm. only 10% of their revenue comes from India. 90% right. of these companies' revenue comes from outside India every year, even, even today. Right? No other industry in the world has built global dominance with only 10% of local market support. Even the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons, they became massive, $100 billion companies just in the US before they went out, right? before they had mm-hmm. the confidence to take over new markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, no other company, no other industry, no other country in the world has, with such little market support, created any, a world-class industry. Today, the world's most valuable IT services company is TCS. It beat IBM last year, right? Infi, mm-hmm. Infi and uh, uh, Kong is under in the top five. In the top 10, you five out of the top 10 are Indian IT, IT services. Indian company. companies. So, that's right. So it's, it's, it's phenomenal what they've done and in how, in how short a time period they've achieved global domination. This is, the, this is the product of India, I would argue, right? While it's a services market, of course, this is the Indian IT product. This is the pillar around which Indian startups have become what they've become. These are the companies that trained the Indian talent pool. These are companies that pioneered a global delivery model and proved that India has a cost advantage and a talent advantage. One over the other makes no sense. Right? Mm-hmm. And third, very importantly, they proved that the world can buy Indian software and, act- and it actually works great. It is world class. It is maintainable. It is built the right way. It is architectured correctly. It is delivered on time. It is at the right cost. You don't, you're not overpaying for anything. It's priced correctly. So that, that entire context of Indian technology is something that these companies, like we have to give credit to them. It wouldn't have happened without them. And there is no startup ecosystem without these companies. So I think that's right. the, so, so I would argue that Indian, the Indian startup ecosystem until 2025 maybe when we become $25 billion a year, it's still an accessory to these companies, right? But the rate at which Indian startups are growing was is far, far faster than the rate at which those IT services companies grow, right? Mm. So I would, I, would, I would argue, don't short sell Indian IT, but hold on with your white knuckles because growth is coming only through Indian startups, right? The Indian IT companies are now a yield plus. They pay three, two and a half, three percent dividend a year. Their stock appreciates maybe eight, nine percent a year uh, if, if things are going okay, right? So it's a yield stock, right? Uh, you put your put your savings there; it's like a bond. It, it will it'll all it'll be fine. But you want growth, you want excitement, you want cutting edge, you want something that generates alpha in your portfolio. The Indian the Indian uh, startup industry is where that's at. So that's how I would think about the Indian ecosystem. And you know, again, very grateful to what's come before us and what's made all of this possible. I love that comparison and example that uh, you just mentioned and comparing it to the growth of the IT services in the in the early 80s. Staying on the same or very related subject, any particular geographies in India where you're seeing new activity and super potential? Yeah, so I'm, I'm still a big fan of Bangalore. I'm Bangalorean born and raised. Uh, mm-hmm. Bangalore is by far the most active startup ecosystem, sub-ecosystem in the country. The right. most number of Sunicons, the highest amount of growth capital, all of that comes to Bangalore. This mm-hmm. is the place to be. If you're setting up a headquarters from outside, there's no better city in the country. I would then, I would then argue for Mumbai. I think Mumbai mm-hmm. has got tremendous potential. Unfortunately, it's an expensive city. So it's hard right. to have tech talent domiciled there at scale. However, in media and content and entertainment and fintech, that is the nerve center of the country. Right? So we have plenty of companies in these spaces. 
in the Mumbai region. And Pune is a, a fantastic sister city to Mumbai, uh, much more affordable, much more cosmo, in a, in a sense, much more cosmopolitan. There's more space, there's more green area, there's more, you know, your families can live a little more of a life uh, right. compared to uh, the same the same kind of expense in in Mumbai. So I think Pune and Mumbai will be a, a great ecosystem if cultivated correctly. Uh, the third big one in India is obviously the NCR region, but mm-hmm. in my opinion, there are some challenges. Uh, the weather is a big challenge. We find great activity in the NCR region, but we're a little bit far away from that part of the country, so not too much activity for us there. And the fourth activity center I'm seeing develop is the uh, Hyderabad region. I think, uh, again, Indian IT uh, combined with mm-hmm. MNCs like Facebook and Google and Microsoft and so on, they've built a nice presence there over the last two decades. I think Hyderabad is a fairly deep place for tech talent. Uh, it's not a deep place for funding yet. Hopefully that changes soon. But that's the fourth area I would look at. From a tier two perspective, I am seeing a lot of change happening in Chennai. I think uh, more IT engineers in Chennai are getting confidence to launch startups. I think they'll do phenomenally well in SaaS. I think they're trained to think that way. Think global, mm-hmm. like I was saying before. So Chennai should have a very interesting uh, set of companies coming up in B2B and SaaS. I think uh, uh, tier two startup wise, I'm saying in terms of activity, right? Not tier two in terms of the metro definition. Uh, right. I think uh, I think indoor will be an interesting place. I think combined with the ah. IOM, combined with combined with uh, uh, the interesting set of uh, uh, engineering colleges, it's the center of the city. It's a phenomenally deep and rich cultural center of India. I think some mm-hmm. very smart people are looking at indoor now and thinking about how to cultivate that place, that place's talent, and build interesting competencies out of indoor. Uh, I don't know if you'll have very cutting-edge, deep technology companies there, but you will have interesting media services companies. Or you'll have interesting adjacencies to, uh, say, you have an HQ in, in Pune, you have a second HQ in Indore, and you're able to build uh, your service center there, for example. So you'll have these interesting dynamics between HQ1 and HQ2, uh, like how they speak in the U.S. And I think Indore and a set of uh, set of tier two cities, Chandigarh will be one. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of interesting activity. Uh, these are trying. In, mm-hmm. in Kanpur. Uh, so I think these will be interesting areas for uh, India to grow out. I think there's massive, massive potential with the with the next generation of engineers uh, and software developers. I think they are much, much more aware of how quickly you can build skills in technology areas today compared to even 10 years back. 10 years back, we didn't have coding dojos and, and, and uh, you know, things that you could pay for online and Udemy's and so on. That wasn't yeah. available to me when I was an undergrad, but it's massively, it's changed massively over the last five years, right? So even even a 19-year-old kid coming out of high school uh, can start learning how to code in Swift and build an iPhone app in a year. So I think that's that's changing how the entire country thinks, and therefore the distribution of talent uh, it's going to become much more distributed. It's going to become much more collaborative. I think more people will start prioritizing quality of life. Therefore, mm-hmm. they will pick uh, uh, tier two cities over tier one because it's just too crowded. And I think that's a nice shift that we're going to see over the 2020s. The next decade should see that shift happening uh, much faster. Well, that's interesting. I was aware about Pune and it being, or I probably compared it to the Bangalore of the mid-2000s, but I wasn't really aware about uh, Indore. And that's great to see a lot of activity happening in tier two cities in India. And as as you mentioned, there's, that's going to be, as people choose quality of life, these are going to be the hubs where you will see a lot of startup activity happening over the next five to 10 years. That's right. And and I'd like to move towards the fun part of the uh, podcast. Not that the first part was not fun; it was great. It was very insightful and fun. But this is this is more of a rapid fire round uh, where you know I, I'd like to get some of the some of your personal takes on things that are happening in the industry. So I want to begin with what do you think would be what would you classify as the toughest part of being in venture capital? Oh, the toughest part is by far the rejection. I mean, the number of no's you have to deal with, not just get, not just giving them, but receiving them. Uh, VCs are always fundraising, right? Right. Uh, we're always cultivating our LP relationships, our prospects, and so on. Uh, I think this is a sheer burden of rejections uh, that come from high-risk VC-style capital mm-hmm. allocation. Uh, that is the toughest part of the job. Uh, I am completely fine with dealing with risk. I'm completely fine with dealing with challenges and building a product, getting revenue, growing growing a company, hiring, all of those are known solutions, right? Like those are known problems. But right. just the sheer volume of rejections that come across your table every quarter, I think that's the uh, that's the hardest thing to build a resilience against. And I think, uh, I think, I'm, I may be biased, 
young people have a higher tolerance for this because mm-hmm. we're just used to we're just used to noise from when you're a kid right i want an ice cream no i want a toy yeah. no i want to go to sc- i don't want to go to school tomorrow no no you're right <laughs> so there's there's a no there's a no for you especially for an indian kid there's a no for you uh, the first 25 years of your life right um, so i think that that kind of trains you to be more resilient uh, i attribute a lot of my resilience to my school and college days uh, these are tough schools i went to a boy school i went to one of the tougher colleges in bangalore although it's one of the best it's also a very tough one uh, right. culturally i mean you know it's not an easy time you, you can't be a wimp and survive let's put it that way so mm-hmm. i think this just building a character of resilience um, that is the immediate antivirus against the culture of rejection that is typical to anything that's high risk especially vc i think it, it also helps you develop more empathy towards founders and you know have absolutely. a little bit of a heart when they when you have to say a, when you have to send a rejection to somebody who's fundraising so that's in a way absolutely. i think the positive spin to it What's, absolutely 100% this it's all positive trust me i mean when the yes comes my man this is that is the opportunity that's the silver lining <laughs> you want to make the most of it so i trust me the value of a yes is just that much more compounded in a culture of no totally agree what's what's one thing you wish you knew about venture capital when you first started investing oh um the one thing i wish i knew i i wish i knew just how much of an old boys club it is and continues to be mm. um there's an interesting downside to being young which is most people don't take you seriously right uh, thankfully tech startups have changed that massively in, in the world's culture right mm-hmm. uh, even if, even 15 years back if you were a 22 year old kid like you know take zuckerberg story right most people gave him a no most people didn't understand what he was doing it took a maverick like thiel to give him the first check right yeah uh, even even 15 years back it wasn't as easy for a young kid to do anything when it came to raising large amounts of money raising a fund impossible right Mm-hmm. Uh, being 26 and 27 raising a vc fund would have been impossible for me 15 years back but i think tech startups and founders i give full attribution to founders they've changed this culture of look young people are doing crazy things today we need to be more aware so i wish i knew just how much of an old boys network it continues it is and continues to be it is changing it is changing slowly i think that, like you say especially in the us more women are coming into the space there's more diversity of course but i don't think it's just about no women or or just men or whatever i think it's more about a senior network of people who know each other who think a certain way right it just it's just it's it's the way of things in any part of the world in any industry it's true of vc also it will go through its trip it is i think it will come out better for it that's that's great advice and i told you that i'm going to come back to this question so what is your anti portfolio what do you regret passing up on that you know kind of oh, come yeah. back to bite you absolutely uh, no so thankfully we have enough winners so our funds are okay thankfully it would have been miserable to have no winners and have said no to the best ones that came through <laughs> but uh, thankfully we were, were okay so in our anti portfolio i think the one lesson we've learned is that we should not discount a weak idea by a strong founder in a strong market right mm. the idea can always evolve and it definitely always does i've seen that happen every single time but right to discount a good founder with experience in a good space um so therefore weak product or weak idea right uh, not fully formed i think that is a mistake uh, we've learned that the hard way so uh, good examples i can i can drop these names because you know they, they're all true and the founders will not take any offense we had to say no to nike uh, when they were worth around 80 or 90 million dollars wow today they are 800 uh, we had uh, while while mr nayar is a phenomenal founder i have absolutely you know for the full respect for what they've done we are two blockers we were an early stage fund so something valued 80 90 million we just couldn't get our heads around how an early stage fund could afford that valuation we changed mm-hmm. now obviously so we have no problems with valuation today because we're a larger corpus so we can take that plunge with more capital but at that point in time we were only 60, we were only 20 million dollars and we couldn't just couldn't get enough of a size of holding in that company so we had to pass on nike it's done very well since Uh, we had to pass on cultfit um mukesh bansal's company again right. done phenomenally well grown very very quickly is a phenomenal founder it's built a, it's built a very powerful brand some fantastic fantastic uh, products in the app i think people can't stop raving about how good a, how good a product it is unfortunately yeah. we had to pass again because we just couldn't get our head around okay what does this business actually look like right at scale mm-hmm. uh, but 
he's literally creating a category at the intersection of health and fitness wellness and, and, and yeah. wellness and and mental and all of these things right so mm-hmm. it's 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 a testament to what a good founder can pull off right it's right. also a testament to how we should be uh, more willing to take an idea risk right mm-hmm. uh, and aim to build that competency in together with the right kind of people so i think that's those are two big companies that we passed on but it takes a bold we see to actually drop names such as just you know nike and qfits or really appreciate yeah, you saying that absolutely absolutely honest with it the the good thing is these are the kind of founders that come to us every month right right uh, it takes a long time to build a certain amount of credibility to be able to be in the room um, and have a shot at the first round in some of these things so i think that's a testament to how selective founders are becoming which is fantastic they should not be bullied by vcs anymore and how hard vcs have to work to attract the right kind of founders which is again right. fantastic there's more competition on the capital side very important i think overall this makes for a better ecosystem so i'm happy to share names i mean i have no i have no regrets i'm glad they've done well it's it's fantastic for the indian ecosystem and i also i'm very glad we picked what we did what we did end up picking <laughs> because they've done it's, very well for us it's great to see that kind of attitude uh, prevailing in indian vc that that's very refreshing and and lastly yeah, you know i'd love to hear or i'm sure the listeners also would love to hear your advice to startups that are fundraising for that series and seed and series a uh advice i will refrain from i don't like giving advice i'll i'll give two very simple strategies i think will definitely help right the first mm-hmm. strategy i think founders have to have to invest in is really building an idea of what their end state looks like i think the for my experience the best founders i've sat across the best founders i wanted to work with are the ones who can paint a very very vivid picture of why their company is going to be valuable and what it looks like at full scale right uh, so so a big part of seed and early stage is being able to sell a vision of the future and most of the times unfortunately the vision is i'll be x for y or i'll be that for this or i'll be something like this chinese company 10 years down 10 years later i don't like those kind of analogies that's lazy in my opinion like mm-hmm. i can't go to an lp and say look give me money now because i'll be sequoia in 40 years <laughs> right <Thanks. laughs> that's that's never going to work so uh if the burden on me is to is to prove what what i'm doing i don't see why founders should not take the same burden seriously right uh so in that sense we are peers we are both trying to paint a very competent view of a future so that's the first strategy i would i would uh i would want to discuss with founders is have a very clear view of the end state right and mm-hmm. then all of us can talk about how to work backwards how much money to raise why you are the right guys is the market really what you're saying it is all those become all those questions become far easier to answer secondary yeah the, se- the second the second strategy i think that's critical absolutely critical is founders have to be able to respect capital and prove that they will use capital correctly right mm-hmm. most most of the failed fundraisers i've seen is because either the vc or the founder they so one one party let it slip that look we want this valuation because we want the valuation right but valuation is an output function right capital is an input to a business plan that creates value that therefore creates a valuation right Correct. therefore you are willing to pay this much for a slice of an ownership of that company because that's the that's what the value is going to work up to so valuation is an output function the single most important mistake i've seen founders make with capital raising is that they are asking for the wrong price because they think valuation is the input right uh, mm. so i think this having a shift about look here's my business here's my future here's here's what i'm building right here's what how much value is going to create and then therefore valuation how much i'm raising all of those things are secondary parameters that's the right way to frame a raise and that i've seen succeed more often than i'm raising 2 million at 10 million post because i want to dilute 20% right that that's a very vacuous empty uh, way of framing things so i think that's a second strategy that i've seen succeed and i would definitely definitely uh, love to see more founders uh, employing both strategies to their advantage so it becomes easier for them to raise well those are two great strategies parav i'm sure and i'm hopeful that a lot of startups and founders listen to this and take this into account when they're considering to pitch to not just 314 but just vcs in general founders are wising up 100% we're seeing more and more of this it's fantastic to see awesome that's that's great and hopefully there more to come it was a Absolutely. pleasure to have you on the show i've had uh, such a ball 
asking these questions and hearing your great insights and all of these i hope uh, you know there are you know we continue this engagement and thank Absolutely. you so much for your time thank you akash enjoyed the conversation and there you have it folks it was another great episode and pranav did not hold back in sharing his honest thoughts and perspectives on investing trends in indian vc and his learnings as a fund manager i particularly love the part where he said never miss a good crisis that is gold follow pranav on twitter at pi_dpiper that's p a i underscore d p i p r and while you're at it you can also follow me at bhatvi akash i hope you enjoyed this episode as much as i did and if you're still listening do drop us a review and don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app we have another great guest lined up next week so i hope to catch you again shortly until then keep hustling everyone <laughs>